just want to thank you for the privilege of coming and sharing God's word this morning. You know, when an old preacher is invited to speak, and then you find out that the subject is temptation, it's almost a conflict of interest. It's a tempting subject. 1 Corinthians 10.13 remind us that we're all subject to temptation. Even Jesus in his humanity was subject to temptation. But, you say, he only had three temptations. I faced more than that in one day. How could he be tempted in every way, yet without sin, as it says in Hebrews 4.15? Tempted in every respect, without, and yet without sin, in three temptations. Let's read about those and examine their impact. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 to 11, and let's stand for the reading of God's word. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread, loaves of bread. And he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And then the devil took him up to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. And Jesus said to him again, It is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test, and again, the, Lord, the devil took him to a high, very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to them, all these things I will give to you if you fall down and worship me. Jesus then said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and ministered to him. This is the word of the Lord. Father, as we open your word this morning, and as, I, as we look into this subject, first of all, I just pray for clarity of speech, for myself, clarity of mind and thought, uh, and Lord, that our hearts would be open to your word and your thoughts. Uh, for, Father, for many of us, this has been a very trying and, and busy week. A lot of emotions. 
and yet your word stands firm, uh, is unchanging. And uh, in this middle, in this messed up world that is changingly and constantly becoming more and more uh, against you and your word and your standards, help us to keep your standards first and foremost in our hearts and minds. And as Miles said this morning, I'm glad nothing can stop you. Father, we look around, we see what's happening, and yet everything boils down to coming against you and your word. Father, help us now as we deal this with the whole time that you were tempted. Help us to apply principles we learned from it and from you. We thank you for this in Christ's name. Amen. At the end of John's life, as he is uh, one of the last disciples, uh, he is writing, he wrote a series of three letters. And especially in the first letter, he is writing to second generation Christians. Believers who had never seen or experienced Jesus personally. And it was inter- and it's interesting in his letter he writes out to these second generation believers he says he reminds them that this world the world they're living in in verse uh, chapter two verse sixteen of First John he said we're dealing with basically three things the desire of the flesh the physical the desires of the eyes. That's often visual. And the pride of possessions. That also is coupled with position and status. Three things. And I often wondered when I was younger how we could talk about the three temptations of Christ being he was tempted in every way as we were when there was only three. But everything boils down to those three. And as we look at the temptations in Matthew 4, we first of all see that Jesus, the Son of God, trusted for the Father's provision. In the midst of physical hunger, Jesus was challenged and tempted to take Stones and make them into loaves of bread. Now, I've often heard speakers and teachers talk about the three temptations of Christ mirrored the three temptations of Adam and Eve. And that's in some ways true, but not exactly the same. When Jesus was tempted, he was tempted in the wilderness after fasting 40 days and 40 nights. Extremely hungry. Adam and Eve, when they were faced with temptation, 
They were in the center of the garden, surrounded by an all-you-can-eat buffet. So what's, what's interesting about that? What did I observe about that? Here's what I observed. Satan will attack our weaknesses regardless of our circumstances. Satan attacks our weaknesses regardless of our circumstances. When he came to Jesus, he attacked Jesus at his weakest when he was hungriest, and, and Jesus had the power to provide for himself. If you are the son of God, you can do this. You can satisfy your hunger. You can do what you want. For Adam and Eve, he attacked not in hunger, but he attacked in their plenty, but he attacked with doubt. Did God really say? Did God really say? Actually, God is restricting you. God doesn't want you to know things like he knows. And Eve looked, and she saw that the fruit was good for food. and pleasant to the eye. And then Satan went in with the, the real point. God's holding out on you. God doesn't want you to be like him. We often see the same thing today. Did God really say? Did Jesus really say that? If you're really the Son of God. One of the things I avoid, like the plague nowadays, especially if you're on the internet, is anything that has a title that says Bible Secrets. Or the secret life of, or the... Because never, there's never an answer in there, just nothing but questions in there. And something creating doubts. And often, sometimes, when we are uh, perhaps making choices that aren't biblical, we do it also in doubt. A friend of mine was working with young adults. And uh, he, uh, they were having a Bible study, and all of a sudden, one of the young guys piped up, and he said, "How do you know the Bible's true?" And my friend didn't bat an eye; knew he was in relationship with another young with a young lady in that group. They were kids from the church. 
And he looked them straight in the eye. Instead of going down the rabbit trail of proving the Bible is true, he just looked them in the eye and said, so how long have you been sleeping together? And he said, the, from the look on the reaction on his face, he, it was like saying, how did you know? When he started to question the word of God, when he started to walk down the, the whole thing of doubt, he was already falling for the temptation. And it's interesting how Jesus answered uh, Satan's challenge here. Because when he answered, he answered from way back in Deuteronomy. Because when Jesus answered, he talked about you shall live by, uh, let's see, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And that comes from Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. And it's where God is talking. Uh, and Moses is relating about how the Lord had led you for 40 years in the wilderness that he might humble you and test you to know what is in your heart, whether you would keep his commands or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. What an answer. People were complaining. People thought they were going to starve to death. Yet God in his love and his grace, he humbled them. He let them go hungry. Then he fed them manna. Manna. I love that word. Manna means, what is it? What is it? We don't know. What is it? But he said, not only manna, but every word from the mouth of God. Physically and spiritually, God provides for us. Then he went on to continue to test Jesus, Satan's, continue to tempt Jesus by wanting him to test God's providence. Jesus was taken to the highest point of the temple, which according to the historian Josephus was about 300 feet above the uh, Kidron Valley floor. And again, the, ch the challenge, if you are the Son of God, if you are the Son of God, jump. Jump. And he partially quotes, or very selectively quotes scripture, Psalm 91, 11, and 12, the angels will catch you. He doesn't go on to 13 where it talks and 13 where it talks about how the Son of Man will also, or Son of God, will crush the serpent, which was himself. 
but the angels would count it. All you have to do is prove that God is with you. Prove that you are the son of God by doing something so spectacular that, that people will look at that and go, oh, wow, God is with him. Prove that God is with you. And Jesus answers from Exodus 17 and verses 1 to 7. Very interesting. Exodus 17. All the congregations of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the command of the Lord and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses, give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water and the people grumbled against Moses and said, why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, what shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Egypt or Israel, and take your, in your hand the staff which you struck the Nile and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock of Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out, and people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he called the name of the place Massah and Meribah, because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? When I look at this, I think about times in my own life even, where I was perhaps doubting God's provision. And in doubting, sometimes we can doubt our leaders. We can doubt, the people here doubted Moses' leadership. And because of that, they grumbled and doubted God's provision. Massah and Meribah. Have you ever had that trouble of, of trusting God's provision? One time we were visiting here in Grand Forks. Uh, we've been away to a retreat. Uh, we had just released a church to a new pastor. We had our downtime. We were heading home. We were parked in town here at Pete and uh, our in-laws, Pete and Betty. I went out to start the car. The car wouldn't start. I had, we had enough money to get home. And uh, the gas tank was full. And we played with the car, got it running. I did not shut it off 
until we got to Calgary. The starter had quit. But we had managed to just kick it over enough to get it run. We drove home. I went to the auto parts place, ran inside, door stayed in the car because it was left running, bought the starter, got home, going, how do I pay for this? We checked the mailbox. And when we got home, and there was an envelope in it. Nothing on the front, nothing on the back. But inside was a check for the cost of our trip plus the starter. Right? Something that helps pick you up just at the right time, because up till then, you're starting to wonder, is God going to provide and what's going on and how come, what, is, what are we even going to do next? Because we had just released the church and we had no idea what the next step was going to be. So there was a bit of a struggle. Is God still with us? Thankfully, the answer is yes. Our God is so big, so strong and so mighty, there's nothing that our God, God cannot do, right? And it really helped cement and solidify even my faith as a pastor, right? As a church planter, there could be those struggles. We don't have to whether, wonder whether God is with us or not. And the third thing that Satan really challenged Jesus with is he took on the, up on a very high mountain. I, I often, I was trying to picture this the other day, how he was able to show Jesus all the kingdoms of the world, and I don't know if that was for all time or around that time. But when I thought about that, he saw all the kingdoms and all their glory. And Doris and I, when we were in India there for a few weeks, we looked at some of these amazing palaces. We were in one palace where I stood in the center on a walkway that was at least 20 feet, or maybe more, about 20 feet. There was this huge walkway that kind of divided the compound, and the compound is at least a section, if not more. It was like you stood and you looked for the walls on that side, and then you stood and you looked for the walls on that side, and this is just one huge palace with all these different buildings on it, and all these amazing different animals. You thought you were in a zoo that were on the grounds as well. And if you went into the, these huge buildings, the amount of work and the, the glory and the gold and all the things that were, were, had been around. And Jesus and Satan, as he shows them all this, he says, I will give you all of this. You will be, accept, you will be a super rock star. I will give you all of this if you just bow down to me. 
Want to think about the implications of that? Satan was offering Jesus the worship of the whole world, and he did not have to go to the cross. He could have the worship of the whole world without having to go to the cross. Is that tempting? If you could have the worship of the whole world and not have to go through suffering on a cross, would that be tempting? When I was a kid, even as a, as a, a teenager, I had this dream. I would be able to sit down at a piano and play music. And I wouldn't have to practice. <laughs> now musicians know that that's a fantasy. <laughs> right? Jesus' response. You shall worship the Lord your God and him only will you serve. I looked at that and I, I, I meditated on that and I thought, man, alive. that was a huge temptation. Without, if I could, you, if I could just save the whole world and not have to go to the cross. And it comes out again three years later after this event when Jesus is in the garden and he is kneeling at the rock and he's praying to God and saying, Father, if it's possible, remove this cup from me. Yet not my will, but you know what you will, as recorded in Mark 14, verse 36. So often nowadays we hear the humanitarian and the humanist teaching of, of salvation and recovery and saving the world without any blood sacrifice. They don't want anything to do with the blood sacrifice. It's just all good stuff. And yet God's plan is, has to counter the fact that the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. And there has to be a perfect sacrifice. Interesting when you read the uh, fall of man and Adam and Eve, when they realized they sinned, covered themselves up with fig leaves. They tried to hide their sin. And as I was teaching this in our Punjabi church, it, I came to that part of the sentence where it said, and God covered them with animal skins. And I looked at the group and I said, where did the animal skins come from? Hmm. And then they asked each other, well, where did the animal, where did, he, where did God get the animal skins? I said, from animals? 
innocent suffered for the guilty. And Jesus, and it was read this morning, Pastor Ben wrote it, read, read the thing about Philippians and Philippians chapter 2. Jesus humbled himself to the Father's plan of being a perfect sacrifice on the cross to pay for our sins. Amazing, amazing thought. Amazing, amazing thought. That Jesus would humble himself innocent, perfect, to die for my sin and my guilt. And as I thought about this subject this, this week, and as I was preparing and writing notes and throwing away notes and writing new notes, I thought about we, this whole thing of temptation, you know, we often think about temptation as out there. It's out there. That's not what the Apostle James says. When he wrote his letter, he talked about the temptation that's in here. How do we deal with the temptations that are in here? And here's some example of the, from the different gospel writers, from the different... Uh, people that wrote to the churches. In the third letter of John, verse 9, there was a person in the church who desired to control the whole church. Diotrephus wants to be first. He doesn't recognize our authority and he stops anybody in the church. In fact, he kicks people out of the church who don't agree with him. So that's a temptation. In Laodicea, we see a whole church that was self-reliant, said it needed nothing. It was rich. And Jesus calls that church to repentance. In fact, that's the one where a few, later, a few verses later, he said, I stand at the door and I knock. And if anybody opens the door, I'll come and be with him. And we'll eat together. A whole church that was self-reliant. And I think of that today and I think about some of the, the problems that is inhabiting our North American church, especially, is that we are very self-reliant. And we need to be answering Jesus' knock on the door. 1 Corinthians in chapter 8 and verse 1, it talks about the pride that we can have. And I know this for myself. Pride of Bible knowledge, that's just to name a few. But pride of Bible knowledge, that was probably one of the things I had to repent of the most sometimes. If you weren't a regular Western, regular Baptist, you weren't saved. Because we were the only ones who had the real answers. Right? I'm not putting them down because they changed. They become a whole bunch of nice fellowship Baptists now. Okay. But that, that, it was a very rigid teaching 
Uh, I, I grew up in, but uh, God saved me through it in spite of it, right? Because in First Corinthians eight and nine, eight and verse one, and this applies not only to Bible knowledge, but just sometimes our attitude and our, our uh, wanting to always know things is that knowledge puffs up, love builds up. Because sometimes when we get arguing about small things and which teaching is perfect and which one is right, uh, we divide and we, we actually tear people down uh, and tear people's faith apart. That's the scheme of the devil. He uses it very, very powerfully. Paul writes in Ephesians to be aware of the devil's schemes. And if you are running into something that is causing doubt or is deceptive or especially discontent, if you find yourself becoming more and more discontented, look at where the source is because that often leads to disillusionment and that leads to destruction. Jesus showed us victory because he trusted in God's provision, he trusted in God's providence, and he trusted in God's plan. If we do the same, then we can be like Miles and say, nothing can stop the Lord Almighty. Nothing can stop the Lord Almighty. We trust in God's provision, providence, and plan. Let's pray. Father, you are the one who helps us. It says, your word says, we resist the devil. He will flee from us, but we need to resist him in you. We cannot do it on our own. So, Father, as we trust in you, as we trust in your provision and we trust in your providence and we trust in your plan. Father, may we too also know that victory so that we can build each other up, strengthen each other. And Father, we want to thank you for what you're going to do and how you're going to do it. And Father, all of this is because Jesus lives. He's not a God of the past. He's not a God that's not touched by the situation we're in. The writer of Hebrews reminds us that he was tempted in every way, yet without sin. He is not a, man, he is not, we not, he is not a high priest who doesn't understand us. And Lord, because you lived, we can trust in you. Because he lives, we can face tomorrow. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.